those of you that have been coming for the last little bit, for the last few, few months, you know we've been going through the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it's been a blessing to me, as I trust it's been a blessing to you. So we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 12, and if you'll open your Bibles to Acts 12, I think you'll be blessed by it. Acts chapter 12. We find we just left off with the church in Antioch doing some amazing things, blessed by the hand of God, um, not contained, not just trying to hoard things to themselves, not just trying to hoard people to themselves, but knowing that they're truly blessed by giving out. And uh, we're going to take a little bit of a detour from the church of Antioch, and we're going to go back to the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12. And if you can open Acts chapter 12, it says in verse 1, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. So when he says uh, he laid hands on some, this is not talking about Herod, you know, had everybody line up and started to pray for them one by one. This is not laid hands like we talk about. (laughs) This means he roughly, he grabbed them, he had them seized, he had them arrested. And his plan was to mistreat them. Now, the reason for this, this is, of course, you might get your Herods mixed up. If you read through the New Testament, you go, this Herod guy, he is one arch villain. He is like the bad guy in the New Testament. But the truth is there were a lot of kings named Herod. The first one we encounter was when Jesus was a baby, or just about to be born, in fact. And his name was Herod, and of course, he was Herod the Great. After him, there were a lot of Herods, and they were all in his family. The guy we're looking at right now is a man named Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa had an interesting life, and we might go into this a little bit later because he's, he's going to be a major player later in the chapter. But uh, he had an interesting life that had some really big downturns, and then he almost, he hit a real upturn because he befriended the right guy. And when you befriend the right guy in Rome, Sometimes that works out well for you. Sometimes if you befriend the wrong guy, you lose your head. He happened to befriend who, the man who would become emperor, and uh, that was Caligula. When Caligula became emperor, he elevated his friend Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, to be the king of many regions in Judea. And so as Herod was king, he uh, also has got to play politics. Not only does he have to play politics with the Romans, he's got to play politics with the Jewish people. At this point, the Christians have started to make a little bit of a ruckus. They've started to make a bit of a rift. They've started to move and shake because that's what the gospel does. It always moves and it always shakes. Maybe you've discovered that. And as they've made a lot of uh, friends, they've also made some enemies, not because they were terrible people, not because they were mean, but simply because the fact that they were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah shook some things up. People were getting healed on temple property. There were some definite things that were rocking the status quo. So Herod wants to shut this down. He's under immense pressure. People like the Sadducees who were in charge of the the Sanhedrin, in charge of the Jewish synagogues, the Sadducees were very political. They would have been pressuring this guy. He would have had the, the elite pressuring him. And so he grabs some of the leading Christians and his goal is to mistreat them. And as we find out in Acts chapter 12, he gets a hold of a man named James. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1, we'll read that verse again. About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, now when we see the Jews, as often in the New Testament, when it says the Jews, that's not talking about every Jewish person. 
James himself was a Jew. All, most of the Christians in Jerusalem were Jews. So when it says the Jews, you have to know that he's usually talking about the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the Sanhedrin. So these are the folks he's talking about. He saw that it pleased them. And this is where he's getting his political capital from. He sees that it pleases them. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Now I want you to think about this. Can anybody tell me what Peter was before he started following Jesus? What was his job? He was a fisherman. He might have been a big guy. He might have been a strong guy. But do you need four squads of soldiers to guard a preacher? I mean, just think about it. Four squads. I don't know how many is in a squad, but I know four guys is probably overkill. Four squads of soldiers to guard this guy. I can imagine it, it might go back to the fact that the last time they arrested a bunch of apostles... These guys got released by angels in the middle of the night, and in the morning they found him preaching at the temple again. So this time they put four squads of soldiers on one guy. Now the Bible doesn't tell us much about James' death. It just says he was put to death with a sword. It's almost sad to see how it ended. James, the brother of John, the two sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, these guys. Uh, John, who would later go on to write not only the books of John, but the book of Revelation. James was a, was a mover and a shaker in his own right. He was a, a great leader. And yet his death, we don't know much about. We just know he was put to death with a sword. And people got happy about that. And, and they celebrated the fact that he was put to death. They celebrated the fact that Herod had put a dent in the Christian church. And so he, he arrests Peter, and he plans to do the same thing. He puts four squads of soldiers on him. And it says he intended after the Passover to bring him out before the people. He's going to make a big deal out of this. It says, so Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Here's one thing that we see in regards to Peter that we didn't see with uh, regards to James, that we didn't see uh, when he's arrested. There's a big difference here. Now, I don't know that the church didn't pray. We don't know what the church did. But I think something woke them up when James was executed. They might have thought this was no big deal. They might have thought that this was just going to turn out in the end. But when James died, something changed in the church. When Peter was arrested, it says, but the church was fervently praying for him. Now, you can have all your theories about why James died and Peter didn't. And the truth is, the Bible doesn't say why James died. So it's pointless for us to speculate. It's just stupid for us to come up with theories why James died. But I'll tell you why Peter didn't die. Because the scripture tells us why he didn't die. Everybody knows that the operative word here is but. But's an important word, isn't it? It says he intended to do the same thing to Peter. So Peter was kept in the prison, but. In other words, there is something. We just found out he's in prison. He's about to be executed. But there's something that's about to be said which contradicts all of that. He's put in prison. He's about to be ex executed. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Think about that phrase for a minute. Think about that word fervently. On Sunday, we talked about the scripture in 1 Peter, which says, love one another fervently from the heart. We talked about the intensity of a word like fervently. That's not lightly. That's not passive. That's not in your spare time. I want you to think for a moment, when's the last time you prayed fervently for something? 
When's the last time we prayed together fervently for something? For many of you, it might have been two days ago. It might have been yesterday. It might have been today. Some of you might say, I don't know the last time I have prayed fervently. Fervently to me is intensely. Fervently to me is with a purpose. Fervently to me is not just one of those passing, I'm praying for you. And then just so you're not a liar, you say a 30-second prayer for him. Certainly, and I think that, that fervently here does not just mean how passionate or how loud it is. Fervently means that it's not, it's not on the side. It's not something that you lightly did. That's certainly true. That's certainly true. But here we see that the church was, it says prayers were being made. So it was over an extended period of time. It's fervently. It's something they care about. It's something that they are not just taking lightly. It's something that they're not just uh, throwing up there and say, well, God will take care of it. They do know that God's going to take care of it, don't they? But they know God's going to take care of it. He's going to use them to do something. Here's what happens. It says prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. In verse 6, it says, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Does anybody here, just by a show of hands, does anybody here think that's overkill? Totally. Yeah, right? He's bound with two chains between two soldiers. He's a preacher. Now, granted, he's the preacher that pulled out a sword and chopped off a guy's ear in the garden when Jesus was arrested. But that in itself showed his ineptitude at being a soldier. He missed the skull and he got an ear. He's not the best soldier in the world. He's a fisherman. They bind him between two soldiers with two chains, and they put guards in front of the door watching over the prison. Now, maybe they think that the church is going to make a coordinated rescue attempt. Maybe they just think too much weird stuff has happened already. We just want to be sure. But it says here in verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up. So the angel didn't just lightly, lightly breathe him awake, didn't lightly, uh, gently shake him awake. He punched him in the side, said, get up, Peter. Sounds like your older brother sometimes, doesn't it? Struck Peter's side, woke him up, saying, get up quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Now, here's the amazing thing. While this is happening to Peter, these guards are still asleep. And as Peter has these chains fall off, it says, and the angel said to him, gird yourself and there's get ready, prepare yourself, gird yourself, and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done by the angel. If he didn't even know if it was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they passed the first and second guard, they came out to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. Does anybody think this is pretty cool? I would have agreed with Peter. I would have thought this was a vision. I would have thought this was a dream. I would have been very surprised to find out this was really happening. The easiest prison escape we've ever heard of. He just walks out. Chains fall off. The guards keep sleeping. The doors open. He gets to the gates of the city. The doors open by themselves. And it says, 
They went out and they went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. Isn't that great? No word of, hey, Peter, this is, where, this is how you get home. Hey, Peter, it was nice getting to know you. The angel just leaves. As you find out, as you read these, these accounts of angels interacting with humans, they're not, they're, their skill is not in the social skills. That's not their thing. So their number one thing is not to socialize and make friends and make buddies with you. They're just going to get their job done. They're going to do what they were sent to do. The angel departs right away. And it says in verse 11, when Peter came to himself, in other words, he realizes, wait a second, this isn't a dream. He came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. So she's so excited. Peter's at the door. He just got out of prison. She's so excited, she doesn't let him in. She just runs back. Can you imagine being Peter? Just, you know, all right, that's great. Standing in the street. She gets excited. She goes back. And it says in verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, oh, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they'd opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. How many of you can identify with this? That you've prayed and prayed before and you're very surprised when it actually happens. Now, you were sure you were praying in faith. You were sure, oh, when your friends ask you, can the Lord do that? You said, oh, not only can he do it, but he will do it. I have his word. It promises this. But when it happens, you're as shocked as everybody else. <laughs> remember praying for a guy in the, remember we prayed for a guy in the Philippines. And, uh, it, you know, <laughs> he's a blind dude. And right in front of us, the cloudiness is in his eyes disappears. And he's able to see, and he's able to, we'd back up, he's able to read signals and read, you know, like this guy can see now. He can tell us how many fingers we're holding up, close up, and from a distance, something's dramatically changed. His friends that have known him for years are going wild. They're excited, but he's just like, of course. And we're shocked. We're saying, whoa, did you see what happened? And he's looking at us like, that's what you said was going to happen. <laughs> now, I'm a little suspicious as to why you're surprised. <laughs> You said, you said, you prayed for me, God could do this, and now you guys are acting like you weren't expecting it to happen. I'm sure that happens a lot. They're amazed, verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led them out of the prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. When the day came... There was no small disturbance. Isn't that a bit of an understatement? There was no small disturbance amongst the soldiers as to what had, could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Wow. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. He thought it'd be a good idea to just get out of the city for a while. It's a bit of a political red face in that moment. But I want you to see something, and, and this is what we're going to focus on tonight. That key phrase that Herod had intended to execute Peter just like he did James. He handled him the same way. Everything was the same, save for the fact that the church was praying fervently for him. So much so that when Peter shows up, they're still praying. They're still in the room. 
You know, they all have homes, right? They're all in the same place. They're still praying for them. There's a key here because we understand, like I said, we don't know why James died, but we know why Peter escaped. And I don't believe it's just because God liked Peter the more than he liked James. I don't believe it was because God flipped a coin and said, Peter lives, James dies. The scripture is clear here. It says, but the church. Prayers were being made fervently by the church. It does not say, but God decided Peter should live. It says, but the church was praying. Now, we should base our theology not on experience, but on the scripture. We should base our theology not on our hunches, but on the scripture. And the scripture says the difference is the church was praying. Here's the thing. Not only were they praying, I'm sure they were praying, expecting that God would do something. They weren't expecting it to happen that fast. They, they were a little surprised when it did happen. But they were praying fervently. They were, they were together. They were in unity. Something about James being executed woke him up to the reality that we have, we're in a battle here. And we've got to start fighting. We've got to start standing together. We can't just let this happen. Now, the, the truth is, you, you've got to, you, you can, for each mile of road, there's two miles of ditch, right? You could get in the ditch and say, it didn't matter what they did. Peter was going to live or die based on what God decided. Well, we know it mattered that they prayed. God ordained that they would pray. God urged them to pray, and God moved through their prayers. The other side of the ditch is, you might think that God had no control and that, that he's just being controlled based on whatever they wanted him to do. But, of course, the scripture says, if we pray according to his will... He hears us, and we have whatever we've asked. So if the church had prayed contrary to the will of God, it wouldn't have done any good because outside of the will of God, your prayers have no effect outside of his will. What I have found, though, is when you pray, you, you come into conformity with his will. In that time of prayer, you become shaped to his will. In fact, you might change your mind in the, in the middle of prayer because you're fellowshipping, communicating with God. We can't just say, well, church, hey, if this works, let's get together and let's pray that, that all of a sudden Lloyd Minster has, has a mall that's bigger than West Edmonton Mall. Let's get together and let's pray. And then tomorrow somebody starts building it. That's not how it happens. Because unless it's the will of the Lord, unless there's a promise from God, you don't just get to decide what God's going to do. So how do we know? Well, of course, we have the word of God. Isn't that wonderful? which lays out the promises of God, the will of God in many situations. It's, the Bible says, for all of his promises are yes, and through Jesus Christ we have our amen to the glory of God the Father. So that means that every time God's made a promise, every time you ask about that promise, his answer is yes, and we respond with our amen, which means so be it, I agree, let it be done. Now here's the deal. There are plenty of times we don't know what God's will is, right? Like I've said before, the Bible doesn't say whether you're supposed to live in Lloydminster for the next 20 years. God can use his word to give you those answers. God will use his word to shape that. But it doesn't say in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 13, and Trudy and Don will live in Lloydminster until the day they see Jesus. Be nice if it did, right? Tell you, tell you what your address is going to be. Tell you <laughs> where you should start your businesses. You know, but it doesn't. So that when we don't know the will of God, what do we do? We ask. The scripture says in Romans 8, when we don't know how to pray, 
We pray according to the Spirit. We pray in the Spirit. And the Spirit who knows the will of God, searches the heart of God, knows all things. The Spirit prays through us and groanings too deep for words and prays out the perfect will of God. God will reveal his will to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says it very clearly. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that even things that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Nobody could have guessed what God has prepared for you, but it says the only one that knows the heart of God is the Spirit of God. Just like the only one that knows your heart is your spirit. Then he says, at we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God. He just finished saying, the only one who knows the will of God, the only one who knows the depths of God, the only one who knows the heart of God is the spirit of God. And then he says, we've received the spirit of God. And he finishes the sentence with this, that we might know, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Why is it important that you know what's already been granted? You can receive it. You can ask for it. What does the scripture say? Jesus says, ask and you will receive. He says, whatever you ask for in my name, you will have. We know when he says, if you ask for it in my name, he's not just saying you ask for a unicorn, you say in the name of Jesus, and then you get it. Because that's not in his name. Any more than you taking my credit card and going and buying, you know, like $5,000 worth of video games in my name. That's not in my name. You might have used my name, but you didn't do it in my name. If we want to pray in the name of Jesus, we pray according to his will. And we know his will by the word of God. We know his will by the spirit of God. And we don't know his will. You pray in the spirit and let God work that out in you. So the church prayed. They knew it was God's will that Peter lived. They knew that God had a plan for Peter, so they prayed fervently. Well, here's what you have to understand. Here's what we have to understand. It's that you may not know God's will in every situation, but God will reveal his will to his servants. Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves, I call you friends. And the difference is a slave does not know what his master is doing. Friends do. He tells us over and over again how he wants to reveal his will to us. If we know the will of God, if we can be assured of the will of God, if we can at least be led in the right direction, we can pray according to his will. And those are the prayers that shake nations. Those are the prayers that change things. Those are the prayers that get answered because Jesus, Jesus told us, John writes it, that if we pray according to his will in his name, you, you treat it like the prayer is already answered because God has answered that prayer. The church prayed fervently. I want you to turn to the book of James, and we want to see something here. The difference in Peter was not God liked him better, God wanted him to live, and wanted James to die. The difference is the church was praying. If you think that whatever's going to happen is going to happen no matter what you do, there's really no point in you praying. You might as well just, you know, do whatever else you're going to do because prayer has no purpose if you think it's not making a difference. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God? Yes, we do. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He rules over all. But sometimes that word sovereignty gets abused. It gets used for something that we like to call fatalism. We just believe anything that happens was supposed to happen. Maybe you heard somebody in a reality show say that. Red flag number one, they're on a reality show. Not all reality shows are bad. 
just 95% of them. Somebody says, well, I think, you know, they, they've got a, you know, they went out and did something stupid on their own. And then they go and say, well, I think everything happens for a reason. Yes, the reason that happened was because you did something very stupid. But they're implying that God must have wanted it to happen. You know, I, I, I drank. And so I, I drove while I was drunk. I uh, hit a family. I put them in the hospital. But I think everything happens for a reason. The reason is you drank and you drove and that happened. Don't, don't blame that on God. Because the scripture says very clearly, God does not tempt anyone with evil. Nor can he be tempted with evil. For you to blame that on God, what you're saying is God put it in my heart to drink and drive. It must have been his will. Well, that's a nice get out of jail free card for you. But the truth was, God has given you the agency of free will. Does he rule over all? Yes, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Can he do anything? Yes, he is. Is he handcuffed by you? No, he's not. But he has still given you freedom of will, and he's given believers authority on this earth in his name. So that means you have a role to play. You have a responsibility. Without authority, there's no responsibility. If you have no authority, there's no responsibility. You have been given authority. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And now in my name, you go in that authority. You cast out evil spirits. You heal the sick. You raise the dead. You preach the kingdom. He instructed his disciples to do that. The book of Romans says, we, we want everyone to believe. We want everybody to hear the gospel. But how can they believe if they've not heard? How can they hear if there's not a preacher? How can he preach unless he's been sent? Well, here's the question. If somebody is called to preach and called to proclaim the gospel, but he doesn't and he stays home because, or she stays home because of their own fear, because of their own insecurities, is it because God didn't want those people born again? No, it's because they were afraid and they, they disobeyed the will of God. So you do have a part to play. Prayer makes a difference. We see it throughout the scripture that prayer has a difference. It makes a difference. The book of James, we're about to read from it, but, but in, in a section that we're not reading tonight, you can look it up on your own. He says, you have not. He says, you're angry because you don't have what you need. And then he says, but you have not because you didn't ask. You have not because you asked not. He doesn't say you have not because God just decided you shouldn't have it. He says the reason you don't have it is because you never asked for it. We blame a lot of things on God that ultimately we had a part to play in. Now your prayers without God are worthless. Your energy without God is worthless. Your, your, your best attempts without him are worthless. Without him we can do nothing. So saying all of this does not make God smaller. Doesn't mean you're controlling him. But he has given you a part to play. And whether or not you do it or don't, that will affect the outcome. I don't know how many times uh, the Apostle Paul wrote and asked the church to pray. He said, you pray for me that I will be delivered from the hands of evil men. Pray for me that the gospel would come through clearly. Pray for me that the word of God would spread rapidly and be glorified. Now, do you think he's asking them to pray so they feel better? So they feel like they, they're playing a part, kind of like when you let your, your little kid help you, help you fix the lawnmower, but they're really not doing anything. 
And you prop the lawnmower up and, and you say, hand me that screwdriver. And you could have got to it way faster. But you ask them, no, they're, they're, you, have, you have a real part to play here. And Paul wasn't just saying that to the church, so they felt like they were doing something. He said it because it actually had an effect. He said in the book of Philippians, he's in prison, very close to death, very close to execution himself. He said, I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. He says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So your prayers and the power of God working together is going to get me out of this bind. It makes a difference. Now, this changes things. It changes how you pray, doesn't it? Because if you, you pray and you don't think anything's happening, prayer is the most boring thing in the world. That's just, I, I mean, just to be blunt, it, it's, not, it's not something I enjoy to just re- ritualistically, religiously recite a bunch of words that are doing nothing. Now, prayer is not all about changing things. Prayer is also about fellowship with God. And prayer changes us more than it changes anything. But if you think that prayer has no effect, you're not going to want to pray. But when you know that God has called us to pray and that things change when we pray, boy, that makes it exciting, doesn't it? Now, the, the purpose for that is not to make prayer exciting, but to just let you know there's something that happens when you do. Let's look in James chapter 5. Now, James 5, 7 through 12 speaks of patience, speaks of endurance, talks about Job, talks about what he went through, says, guys, you can endure this. You, can, you don't just give up just because it didn't happen right away. But then he says this in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. That's a big statement, isn't it? He doesn't say, if anyone among you is having a hard time, just live with it. He doesn't say, if any among you are sick, get over it. He says, pray. And if you're, if, you're not getting, if you're not able to handle this yourself, then you call your brothers and sisters, you get them there and pray for you. You notice that this, here he had to have the elders come to this guy's house and lay hands on him. So he's talking about a guy that's not well enough to even get to church. He says, call them to come to your house, pray for you, anoint you with oil. They will lay hands on you, and that prayer of faith will restore the one who's sick. Prayer makes a difference. But let's read on. He says in verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. King James Version says the fervent prayer of a righteous man has much effect, can do much. The effective prayer of a righteous, are you righteous? What made you righteous? Jesus, his sacrifice, his blood, right? That's what made you righteous. The Bible says the righteousness was a gift from God. Righteousness meaning your right standing with God. That was a gift from God. It wasn't your doing, it was his doing. 
It says, the fervent prayer of a righteous person, the effective prayer of a righteous man, has much effect, can accomplish much. And then he goes on and he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Did you know he doesn't say, notice he doesn't say, Elijah was a man with a nature like me. Because I'm the man of God. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the big apostle. I'm the guy writing the letter. Now, he says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Do you ever find yourself reading the Bible and just saying, those guys, I mean, that's them. That's just them. That's, they're superheroes. They're comic book characters. I mean, look at them. Of course they did that. But this is just me. I'm not them. Yet we say these are people with a nature like ours, especially in the New Testament, because we're all born of the same spirit. We have the same spirit living in us that Jesus had. He said, my spirit I give you. He didn't say another one. He said, I'm giving you my spirit. We have the same spirit living in us that Peter had, that Paul had, that James, that John, all of these people has just walked by the spirit of God. We have that spirit. But he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, I'll ask you a question. Did Elijah pray this, and, and, and he prayed this despite God's will? He prayed this against the will of God? No, he was the prophet of God. He was, he was in tune with God here. He wasn't just moving God around like a puppet, because that's not how God works. But it says Elijah, it doesn't say God decided there should be rain. And God decided there shouldn't. It said he used a man, and this man was just like us. And when he prayed that the rain would stop, it stopped for three and a half years. Now, I know we think it's a big deal when it's a little cloudy and it's your wedding day and you're having it outside, which is a risky proposition in this part of the world. And you're having a wedding outside, and we, we think it's a big deal if a cloud moves two inches and the sun peeks out. And we go, oh, praise the Lord. Let's have revival. You know, this is amazing. Elijah prayed, and for three and a half years, it didn't rain. Then he prayed again. And I don't know if you remember that prayer. But he prayed, and he had his servant go look. He says, go look at the clouds. He says, dude, there's not a cloud in the sky. He says, go look again. He says, okay, there's a cloud there now, but it's the size of a man's fist. Look again. And all of a sudden, the clouds break forth and the rain begins to pour torrentially more than you ever could expect. Elijah races down the mountain, outruns the king's chariot. This isn't just a Disney story. This happened. He says, Elijah was a man just like us, the nature like ours. I don't know if you've read the book of First and Second Kings, but maybe you've noticed Elijah quite possibly was bipolar, <laughs> manic depressive. One day, and I, when I say one day and the next day, I'm, I'm meaning it literally, not figuratively. One day, he's on top of the world, defeated all the prophets of Baal, and the very next day, he's hiding. Now, we can, we can fudge the math and say it was two or three days later, but that's still pretty close. The very next day, maybe a couple days later, he's hiding and saying, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. Nobody's like me goes from celebrating, outrunning a chariot to being suicidal in two days. So this guy might be better. I mean, you might be better off than this guy. 
but he trusted God. And when he prayed, things changed. Now, if he was exceptional, if this was just a story for the Old Testament, then why would James bring it up? And he doesn't bring it up speaking to other apostles. He doesn't bring it up speaking to other great leaders of the church. He's speaking to regular people. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Hey, if anyone is suffering, pray. If anyone needs to be healed, pray. If anyone needs healing in relationships, if, if you've sinned against one another, get it right. Pray for one another that there might be healing. If any guy's stuck at home, bedridden, pray for that person. Then he says, hey, look at Elijah. He's a man like us. But when he prayed, weather changed for years. We have got to reevaluate how important we see the prayer that we offer to God. This is not just a religious time. It's not just a time of ritual. It's a time when things change. Things change in us. Things change around us. Now remember, just before this, he's talked about patience. Often we pray, and because it didn't happen when we thought it should happen, we get mad at God and think he didn't answer the prayer. Truth is, not everything happens right away. You've got to stand. There are times where you have to keep praying. I don't know how long the church prayed for Peter, but at some point, Peter showed up at their door. Can you pray without losing heart? Can you pray without looking around you and letting that determine whether or not God's moving? Can you pray and trust him and trust his word? And you know what? Sometimes we get halfway through a prayer and we realize we were praying the wrong thing. Can you be humble enough to shift it and change it? Even if you've announced to your prayer group, even if you've announced to everybody at church that this is what I'm praying, be humble enough to realize that if the Lord says you shouldn't be praying that, that you can change. You can say, oh, sorry. You know what? I got praying and I realized that wasn't the will of God. Now, that's not just backing up and, you know, backing out of it, backpedaling because it didn't seem to be happening. I'm talking when God changes your heart. I want us to get excited again. I know many of you are, but get excited and get fired up knowing that things shift and things change when we pray. Nations shift. The Apostle Paul said, pray for kings and rulers and all that are in authority that we might live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. He says, if you pray, things in government shift so that we can lead a quiet, peaceful life in godliness. Now, once again, I don't think he's just saying that so they feel like they're playing a part. I think he's saying that because it will actually change things. Can we take it seriously? I want us to do ourselves a favor here. Do each other a favor. I know that when you got somewhere to be, one of the easiest ways to end a conversation when somebody's been telling you what they're going through is to say, well, I'll be praying for you. It is a great departing line. It's great, it's great to get you moving. But it's a terrible thing to abuse. If you say, I'm going to pray for you, you make a note, you tell your spouse, you, do, you write it on your hand, whatever you need to do to honor that. Do not take it lightly when you agree to pray for someone. Because the problem is we've, we've dishonored and, and devalued the name of Jesus in the sense that we've told people we're praying and we're not. And they're wondering why it doesn't, nothing's changing, and they start to say prayer doesn't work. When in reality, we weren't really praying. 
Or like I said, maybe we offered a token prayer that was just, it wasn't, it wasn't just for us to, to, it wasn't just us saying, well, this is all that needs to be said. It was us doing it in such a way that we could tell them later we prayed, but we really were just getting it off our back. If we're going to say, I'm going to pray for you, let's pray for one another. If the Lord instructs us to pray, you pray until you feel he's saying, okay, you did it. I remember when I was a kid, I, I watched a, a kid's show. Now, some of the kid's shows I had were some of better teaching than many adults get. We just had, there was some really good kid's shows at that time. And, and I remember, uh, did anybody watch Gospel Bill at all? Growing up, you, Pat, when you, were, when you were a little girl, Gospel Bill was on, right, Pat? No, just kidding. No, yeah. <laughs> Me and Pat watched Gospel Bill. And uh, I remember one episode of Gospel Bill. It was a, it was a Christian Western. And uh, Miss Lana, who was the grocery uh, general storekeeper, <laughs> Miss Lana, I remember her saying, and it stuck with me, she was praying for someone, and then she said, I, I'll keep praying until I know I have the victory. I'll keep praying until I feel it, until I feel it lift. Now, that's somebody who's sensitive to the Spirit of God. She would keep praying until she knew Okay, the Lord's saying you've, you've done it. You've, you've accomplished something. There are times where it's a battle. There's a times, now Jesus said, and to the, that point that we made earlier, Jesus said, don't be like the Gentiles who think that they're heard because they use more words. More words does not necessarily equal a better prayer. But what I'm saying here is you pray until you feel the Lord say, all right, that's good. Can you be faithful to just keep praying until something lifts, until something changes? Grab a couple of people around you. Jesus also said there's power in agreement. Can we grab some friends? Can we grab some brothers and sisters and say, I need some help. Let's pray together and watch things shift and watch things change. I don't know if you've ever seen the Transformations documentaries, but there have been nations that have shifted when people started gathering. Maybe it started out with five, grew to 10, grew to 50, grew to 100, grew to 1,000. But started out with a few people just deciding to pray for their city. And from that, their city was changed. From that, their province was changed. And from that, their nation was changed. The fervent prayer of a righteous person has much effect. And I'm sure someday when you get to meet Peter on the other side of this life, I'm sure, you know, I used to think that I'd have all these questions for all these people. Quite frankly, I, I think now I'm going to be preoccupied. I'm probably not going to be spending all my time hunting down my favorite Bible characters. We are going to be in the presence of Jesus himself. But if you get a chance, I'm sure if you were to ask him, he'd say he was grateful that a church cared enough for him to fervently pray on his behalf. Something had to wake them up to the reality that we don't take this lightly. But when one of our own is in trouble, when one of our own is struggling. Now, they might not be in prison. They might not be on death row, but there are those in our number, there are those in our family that they struggle sometimes, whether it be physically, spiritually, emotionally. Do we love each other enough to say, we'll pray on your behalf? And we're not going to stop until we know and get that sense in our spirit that we've done something. Do you think God can use you to pray? And shift something? Do you think that God's just going to say, well, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do? doesn't matter what you do. I, believe, I think the scripture would bear out. Things change when we pray. Therefore, we should pray. And pray according to his will. Amen? Amen. Stand up with me.
Father, we thank you that you have equipped us as your sons and your daughters. You've equipped us. You've prepared us for this. You've given us your name, which is above every name, that at that name every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that we are part of your family now. You've not just placed us here as pawns and mindless robots, but you've given us free will, the chance to choose to obey or to disobey, to choose life or death, blessing or cursing. We choose you. We ask, Lord, that you would remind us of the effectiveness of our prayers, that you would stir us up to pray. You'd make us a people that desire to pray, that love to pray, that love each other enough to pray for one another, that if there are any sick amongst us, if there are any distressed amongst us, if there's any hurt, if there's any offense, that we would care enough to pray and see chains fall off, doors open, see the dead rise, see the lame, lame healed. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. Amen. Love you guys very much. Hey, why don't you practice what we preach? Go home tonight and ask the Lord, you know, what should I pray about? Spend some time. It does not need to be five hours. If it's five hours, cool. But if it's five minutes, cool too. Just pray. Grab, grab your friend. Grab a neighbor. Pray. See what God does. Amen. See you. Have a good night.